Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Rory Sutherland's On Brand, brought to you by Alf Insight. In each episode, we'll be bringing together big names from the world of advertising, marketing, and media to dissect and debate success, ingenuity, and the future possibilities for our industry. And today, as part of the Mad Anywhere virtual event, we're talking to Shamil Shakra, who's the co-founder of Dishoom, Not Worthy. Now, the interesting thing is, as, as actually, I mean, the whole concept of Indian restaurant uh, is very weird because much of the food we experience and describe as Indian is, for example, uh, highly atypical of Indian food. And your food is also slightly an outlier in the sense that it's as much Iranian or Zoroastrian in its origins as it is originally Indian. Is that fair? Um, it, it, it is. We, we do have a lot of Irani food on our menus, um, which, but it's, it's not strictly Iranian. I mean, it is Zoroastrian. And we also serve an awful lot of the food of Bombay. Um, in, in, in general, I think our menu probably could, is, is Bombay comfort food. And in fact, even the food that is served in Irani cafes that we, we, we serve, especially for breakfast, for example, is, is really Indian. You know, I mean, it's now, it's now sort of assimilated into Bombay. And I think we've always taken sort of inspiration from um, finding those really good dishes in Bombay, which may not be mainstream in the UK, but have really we love and we want to bring um, somehow the best versions of the ones we've tasted. So we think hard about where all the different dishes are and then bring them to you. And, and I, th- I think it probably is all Bombay comfort food in the end. It's the stuff that certainly gives us comfort. And part of your motivation for founding the chain, uh, well, it was, it was founded as a single restaurant in Covent Garden, uh, which I've been to many, many times. Uh, you've now got four in London. I think you've got Edinburgh, Birmingham and um, Manchester as well. So for all you sort of metropolitan snowflakes out of there, you now know you can actually leave London and still get... Um, uh, you know, assured uh, decent food. So that's good news for all you folks. Um, uh, now, uh, the interesting thing is you started as a single restaurant in Covent Garden and you were partly driven, I suppose, by an irrational hatred of flock wallpaper, weren't you? That you felt that the presentation of kind of Indian culture in in Britain had become rather tired and hackneyed. And part of your motivation was to kind of fight against this, uh, you know, rather lazy stereotype that had emerged. I, I think that's true, although I have to acknowledge a massive debt to flock wallpaper uh, because I, I think that what we do stands very firmly on the shoulders of, of, of curry houses and the curry house tradition because I think that it's it's only because of the familiarity of Indian cuisine, and it is Indian cuisine, although you know there's some stories around the Silhetis and, 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 and being Bangladeshi food, it is Mughlai cuisine. Um, we, we stand on those shoulders, and I think the familiarity with the ingredients 
and the familiarity with the taste means that we can do what we do. And it is, it is therefore something that people like. And I think that um, certainly when we were first thinking about, for me, a lot of it is cultural as much as food and thinking about the representation of India in popular culture in the UK. And today we might say there were tropes. That's a, that's a sort of quite a fashionable word. So, so the tropes were curry house, Bollywood, cricket, Days of the Raj, palaces, you know, that, that's, that's sort of it, Bollywood maybe, did I say that? And, and I think there was, there was no room for other more sort of uh, sensible understanding or nuanced understanding of Indian culture. And, and there was so much to be said about, about Bombay, particularly about Indian food and Indian culture in general. And so I wanted to find those dishes that you can't find on, on British curry house menus. I wanted to find that way of speaking about our culture um, and, and, and in a way, it was a discovery for my own heritage as well, uh, and understanding my, myself in the context of, of, of me coming, me being here in the UK as someone of Indian origin, but, but bringing that together and, and, and sort of then challenging the perceptions of Indian culture and saying, there is, look, there's a lot more to be said. And this whole idea of Irani cafes um, and, and the heritage of immigrants coming from Iran, uh, you know, Persia back then, Zoroastrians to Bombay, settling there in the early 20th century and welcoming everyone in. It seemed just a lovely platform to use to tell stories about Bombay, to tell stories about heritage, about the food, uh, and to bring people in. And it felt felt sort of good and fresh and different. And you've certainly done that. I mean, you have a really interesting approach to opening every new restaurant, which is you create a kind of backstory about who the founder might be, who his family might be. So you actually, in the same way that a character in a Hollywood movie might have a backstory written, none of which ever appears on screen, but it's to help the actor understand the character. You do the same when you create a new restaurant, if I'm right. That's astonishing. Tell yeah. me a bit more. Yeah, we Well, I, I, I think I do it because I like doing it. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's, I think it is helpful, of course, but well, we, we believe it is. Um, I think that uh, if, if you're trying to express something, if you're expressing, you know, you're trying to create a design, um, uh, in, in a way, it's much better to use something which is detailed and nuanced, even though the it may not be visible to, to, to guests and customers either. It I don't think it really matters. And, and what we do is, I, I will always think of a, a fictional protagonist, um, someone uh, who might have done something or been somewhere, or one of these Iranis who's created an Irani cafe or has come you know, some circumstances in an Irani cafe. And then we use that story to build the restaurant. So the design, the designers get that brief, uh, the builders, everyone, everyone sees that brief and then we communicate it. And um, for example, our King's Cross restaurant, we imagine a guy uh, who's wandering around in Bombay in 1928 and he's around Victoria Terminus, uh, which, is, which is similar to um, King's Cross, you know, St Pancras rather, which is a big Gothic building. And he's wandering around there in 1928. He's just arrived maybe fresh off the boat. He's quite entrepreneurial, has this sort of energy, sees this big sort of warehouse, which is what our King's Cross restaurant was in the 1860s in, in the UK as built as. And he sees this warehouse and thinks, here are men and machines and animals, there's stuff, I can sell chai here. So, so he, he bribes the guard, sells some chai, maybe he bribes him again a few weeks later, builds a kitchen, you know, builds a little seating area. And eventually 20 years later, he's taken over the whole place. And what, what is nice about that for me is that I get to tell the story of Indian independence because those were the predominant events between 1928 and 1948, when we imagine this restaurant cafe takes over this big warehouse space. And, and I really like the idea of telling the story of independence in a space which was built in 1860, a real space, which is a, the goods shed in, in King's Cross, um, that was used to interchange goods from railroad and, and sort of uh, 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 canal 
um, for the empire, essentially. So this was, this was a sort of a place where empire happened. And now I, I quite like building this, this cafe in there, which was in the empire. But, but what we've done then is, is the whole stories that we tell, uh, the artwork is all anti-colonial. So there's, there's graffiti on Indian independence, that there's a big, a, a huge sign, which is five meters high saying, go back Simon, which is a protest against the Simon Commission in 1928, which we found in archives. It's a big uh, contemporaneous 1928 piece of graffiti. So all of this comes alive. And as you say, maybe people don't know it, but I love the irony of having uh, a five meter piece of anti-colonial graffiti in what was essentially a colonial building in 1860. And maybe it's just fun for me, but it does, I think, give you a very different sense of space and being somewhere, uh, even though you might not be consciously realizing it. It is an extraordinary space and uh, very, very different from any Indian restaurant you've ever encountered before. Indeed, I'd recommend you go there and have a look around, even if you don't like Indian food. Obviously, if you don't like Indian food, you lose quite a lot of my respect and any employment prospects <laughs> with me. But uh, nonetheless, even if you don't like Indian food, uh, it's absolutely worth visiting. And what it also does, which I think is interesting, is one of the things that used to drive me nuts, okay, was there was a kind of artificial ceiling placed on what you could charge for different cuisines. So with French food, for some reason, which is not nearly as good as Indian food, as we all know, okay, um, the sky was the limit. You know, people would regard it as perfectly reasonable to go out and spend three figures on a, uh, a French meal. And yet with Indian food, they just had this artificial mental ceiling around the sort of 25, 30 pound a head mark. Now, what you've done, I think, is very interesting because you haven't gone wildly upmarket. Um, it's undoubtedly a premium price restaurant. You know, there are probably limits to how far you can scale realistically. But nonetheless, you've you've also managed to scale and uh, uh, you know and, and 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 break through that price ceiling. I think incredibly successfully, which was I think something that was long overdue because I always found it a problem with client entertaining because you know you can't quite take a really senior client to an inexpensive curry house not because it isn't good but because it doesn't seem expensive enough. And you finally provided me with a gorgeous outlet here where I can actually get some decent food while I'm providing someone with hospitality. And the way you've done it, I think, is truly magnificent because there are little details in that King's Cross restaurant. Like, I think there are little graffitos as well, aren't there, kind of in the toilets and so forth, which are kind of, um, uh, you know, pre-independence era graffiti appears. And then there are lovely little kind of echoes of kind of previous laws and social norms and, and other messages. And it is it is a very, very rich uh, experience. I, I, I absolutely love it. So what are your plans Interestingly, I had a conversation with, and he was also of Indian origin, actually, the marketing director of, of Yum Brands and Pizza Hut. And his dream has always been, or his great question is, why has no one actually created a sort of chain out of Indian food? So you have this incredibly innovative uh, sector where uh, one of my favorite Indian restaurants keeps its, ta its takeaway menu is only a partial representation of the of the full menu because they don't want other restaurants stealing their signature dishes, for example. So you have this incredibly syncretic culture where people are borrowing, stealing, inventing, experimenting all over the place. And yet it's always remained at sort of one, two or three outlets at most, and often not under the same brand. Where, where do you think, and, and young brands are always asking this question, could we do the same thing essentially uh, and do this at some larger scale? What do you think the potential is there? Or do you think it will always remain something which is an artisan uh, restaurant, essentially? Um, well, well for, for us, we, we, I guess I, I really love every time we open a restaurant to, to deepen the idea of the brand and what we do. And I think, I think there's two different routes you could go down. 
And I, th I think branding is surely um, at some level it's economic, right? So, so the reason I have a brand is because I can do, do the work, do the design work, do the positioning work. And next time I open a restaurant, um, that the brand is, is, is resonant with people so they can come in and I don't have to do all that work again or build up the reputation, but they will come in because it is that brand. And before long, you've got 300 of these things and, and you scale because you, you put the investment into the brand. So I think a brand is, is a huge economic incentive to build a brand. But we don't use that as our motivation. We don't exploit that because every time we open a restaurant, we have to do this flipping work of uh, creating a new story. And, and so it doesn't work that way. So you, you could so you could take one approach, which is what uh, Jeremy King does at Corbett and King. He's amazing. Writes a story every time and builds Fishers, builds the Wolseley, builds the Delaney. And I hadn't realized he does stories too until much later. And we've discussed them quite a lot. It's, you know, it, it, they're brilliant. But what we do is take the same brand and deepen it every time. And I think that that means that it obviously puts a bottleneck on how fast we can do things. But um, it, we, we got rid of logos. I think they're really old school. I don't like them. We have a different typeface for every single restaurant, which is which makes sense in the context of that story. Um, and then, for example, I, I don't know if you, you came to it, but we did the immersive theatre production in Dishim Kensington, where the protagonist was a guy called Cyrus Irani, who's a cross between uh, Carlito from Carlito's Way and Rick from Casablanca. And he leaves prison and he's a bit of a rogue, uh, but he's a lovely guy. Leaves prison, having made some money. He's got, he's got his money. He buys an old cinema, which is defunct. Turns that into a jazz club come restaurant. Um, has a beautiful girlfriend who sings jazz. And opening night, he greets you. For the first two weeks, we didn't open as a restaurant. We opened as an immersive theater production. We had some punch drunk people write the script and help us with, with all the production. And so you walk into this story. And literally, you spend two hours in the company of Cyrus Irani, who would greet you bring you in, give you drinks, the cops might interrogate you, there was some violence and some stuff, we wrote music for it. But I think that what I love about that is that every time we do something, we get to, we get to deepen it a bit, deepen it more. So, so I think we'll always be a bit artisanal because we love doing that. But at the same time, I think what's quite nice about it is that we get to, to put all sorts of things into the brand, all sorts of stories attached into the brand. Um, the, the, we released a record with Dishim Carnaby, which is 1960s music. Um, and we spent a lot of time with the musicians who made music in, in, in Bombay at the time. Um, and that, that was great fun too. We went quite deep into that. Um, and we've got other ideas to do this thing. But this, this storytelling thing, I think, is, is something that's very resonant and very deep. And I think allows you to take branding in a very, very different uh, sort of feeling and direction. So, so for me, it really hangs on, hangs on that for us, you know, that, that we can sort of manage to grow, not that fast, and we'll keep it fairly, fairly sort of contained. But well, we can, we can deepen it as we go. I, I don't know if I answered your question, but I enjoy talking about the immersive theatre production. No, I mean, I, I, I just think that possibly, you know, in the areas, you know, the catchment areas around London, there's a huge opportunity for um, uh, exactly this kind of food, which is, uh, it, it's very interesting, actually. I, I'm sorry to digress a little bit, but The Spectator asked me about a year ago when they had their 10,000th edition to go and review all the advertising from The Spectator um, uh, over the, you know, from its foundation in 1828. Yeah, yeah. And one of the most extraordinary things I noticed, I'd always thought of the Indian restaurant as 1950s phenomenon. When my father was at university, there was one Indian restaurant. He became a lifetime convert. And then it, of course, occurred to me that restaurants, to some extent, uh, weren't actually that numerous in the 19th century. What I discovered in The Spectator, going back to the early 19th century, was an unbelievable profusion of advertisements for Indian spices, condiments and herbs. And I realised that actually this tradition of English people eating Indian food is much, much older than we think. 
because there must have been a whole bunch of Raj returnees who are going, God, right. I can't finish eating this, eating this bland crap for the rest of my life. And so there was yeah, this extraordinary market. You read that? Ah, it's very good. Oh, glorious. Yeah. yeah it's William Dalrymple's book, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Very, very and good. you suddenly realize that that coming back from India and being faced with a lifetime of pretty bland, overboiled vegetables must have been like a kind of purgatory. And the, the whole spectator was packed with these ads for extraordinary exotic... I mean, actually, Worcester sauce emerged from an Indian recipe that the guy brought back. He, he retired to Worcester, took a recipe to his local chemist, who were called Lee and Perrins, and, got, and he got them to make it up. And it was apparently totally disgusting. And so they forgot all about it. And then they left a barrel in the cellar. And 10 years later, they tried it. And it was uh, Worcester sauce, essentially. And so you realise that this is actually much, much older. And I think the latent demand here is for a different kind of food and a different kind of dining experience is colossal. Do you get tempted? I mean, there's always the danger of overexpansion. But do you get tempted to sort of dream of 100 outlets or 150? Or do you think that there's only so far you can stretch? We do do certainly think about it, uh, and and I think there's there's a couple of issues for that with us. I think I mean orthodoxy back in 2014 in restaurants, uh, and we're not in 2014, we're in 2021, which is really really different for all sorts of reasons. But was was raise a lot of cash, simplify your concept, and expand it. And and you know all the clever people said that. Yeah. They said you've got a great concept now. You've got a couple of outlets. You should simplify, you know, scale it and sell it. And 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 we we just decided not to do that. And I think that. Um, so I think I think actually in this particular case, what happened was we were so committed to making sure that the experience was wonderful for both team member and customer, and that we wanted to sort of let's monetize that, let, let's let's make it brilliant, but then monetize that. Let's not be focused on the profit. So let, let, let's make money by focusing on on sort of the quality of the experience. Um, that, that I think that became our culture, and I think in this particular case, culture just trumped strategy. You know, I'd like to say it was strategic that we grew slowly. <laughs> And, and, uh, but I don't think it was. I think it was because we couldn't face opening terrible restaurants and I wanted to write a story every time and make them wonderful because it is a bit of a process. And I think in the end, um, possibly, if you take people from our vintage, um, some really, really great brands, you know, th things like Byron or Polpo, which I used to love, but you know, brands that did try and scale and expand. Did, and, and I think in the end, we, we ended up um, doing a decent job of getting quite big revenue-wise, but without that many outlets. And, and I think we're sort of managing to you know, touch wood is really difficult. And I love those businesses, um, but, but we're managing to sustain what we do. So I, I don't think we paid a penalty in the end on, on actual growth. I mean, I think we, we hit, before the pandemic, we were up at about 55 million of, of revenue. And I think we'll hopefully hit that again, you know, post, post the pandemic. And uh, so, so I, I think we managed to sort of do, do that. The mantra that really helped us to slow down, but at the same time to make sure that our sales per square foot were brilliant, i.e. restaurants are really, really busy, was deepen don't dilute. So it's deepen with a comma, deepen comma, don't dilute. And so every time we open, every time we design a restaurant, every time we serve a dish, every time we have a service experience, we think it should be better than the last one. And if we can achieve that, then I think we, we can grow actually very well, but it, it might appear slow in terms of units, but I, I don't really mind that, but that wasn't what we were after in the first place. So th there are definitely siren calls, um, you know, to get funded and grow fast, but we, we resist them because it doesn't work for us. And of course, in terms of revenue, you've cracked something which was pretty much to mix religious metaphors, the holy grail of, uh, of the Indian restaurant industry, which was you're full three times a day, essentially. Now, this business of introducing breakfast, um, 
my, my hunch as a sort of behavioral science nerd is that it has a knock-on effect. That one of the reasons Indian restaurants are empty at lunchtime is because they're empty at lunchtime. You look in, they're empty. You think, well, I better not go in there. And, you know, we, you know, quite a lot of these instinctive things. Now, one of the interesting things is by offering what is arguably, I think, well, actually, you know, undoubtedly one of London's best breakfasts. If anybody hasn't had breakfast at Dishoom, you're missing out. OK, but one of the interesting things it seems to do is it seems to pump prime um, people going in because the always the assumption was um, Annette King lost a lot of my respect by saying nobody eats Indian food at lunchtime to which I pointed out that 1.4 billion Indians seem to manage to do it quite satisfactorily um, but um, one of the interesting things you've managed to do is the three meal you know effectively you 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 each restaurant which is in quite expensive real estate is pretty packed out for breakfast is pretty full for lunch and is obviously extremely full in many cases there's a queue at, at dinner time. Now, do you think that was the breakfast thing that was actually a killer there, that there was a kind of path dependency of filling the restaurant? Because you know, the great curse of an Indian restaurant, I once said it as a graduate question for graduate applicants to Ogilvy, which is how can you get people to eat at Indian restaurants in lunch at lunchtime? And um, I, I've, you, you seem to be the only place that's really solved that. And, and I, I'm, I'm intrigued to know more. Well, the answer is, 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 is if you want to fill an Indian restaurant at lunch, you serve them breakfast. Uh, and and I, I know that people, um, I think people in 2008, when I was thinking about starting Deshim, thought I was an idiot because why would I leave my secure employment at you know, Bain and Company to do something like launch an Indian restaurant? I know friends of my father were like, uh, you know, this is ridiculous. You're going to open a curry house. That's regressing. You've been educated and you're doing stuff. And now you're going backwards to opening a curry house. But trust, trust me, there is no way you can benefit humanity more than by leaving a management consultancy to open <laughs> an Indian restaurant. There's, there's nothing that touches that in terms of uh, uh, public, public good, I think. So no, congratulations for that. Yeah. Well, um, a lot no, of I, mean, I learned a lot of stuff, but, but so, so, so then when I tell them that I'm opening a, I want to open an Indian restaurant that say fine, you know, that's pretty stupid. It's 2008. Lehman's just crashed. Why would you do that? Like we don't need more Indian restaurants. And then eventually I'd tell them that we're going to have a really busy breakfast. They, they would write me off of course, because, because it made no sense. I mean, on the face of it, um, having a business plan with a, a breakfast in it. I don't know if the business plan had breakfast in it, but, but thinking you were going to launch a business breakfast, uh, an Indian breakfast seems insane, but, I think maybe a couple of things um, were, were behind it. One was definitely the thinking, that if you manage to get people in for breakfast, you'll fill the whole place. There was this very you know, big taboo around Indian food for lunch that we were consistently warned about, that people won't come in because it's smelly, it's the office, and why would you want to smell that way? The, so uh, they're, we, they're lower than vermin. I know, I come across this all the time. <laughs> it's ridiculous, but carry on. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we were sort of humble and understood it and, or tried to and took it on board and said, well, what, what we could do is, is persuade them to come in for breakfast and we'll, we'll invest in really good extract, which we did. We over-specified the extract so the place smelled fine. You're like, it didn't have that stale smell that you do get sometimes after spices. Um, so we over-invested in that and we wanted the place to feel like a cafe. That was really important. So Iranian cafes were cafes and this was not curry house, it was cafe. And cafe was a place that was all day bustling, serving, doing stuff. And, and then when you hit breakfast, um, it repositioned, I think. The, the, and I think people were like, this does breakfast. I wouldn't eat in a curry house for breakfast. Therefore, this isn't a curry house. And, and I mean, honestly, though, it was me and my you know, co-founder, Gubby, sitting in the restaurant for months and weeks on end, staring at our bacon on rolls, just the two of us. And eventually we, we sort of got to, um, I think we got to a thousand pounds a week was our break even cash-wise, which we told ourselves it was, I don't know what it was, 
um, and we did some sort of probably spurious calculations. And my, my sort of wildest dreams was £2,000 a week. This is our first restaurant in Covent Garden. And eventually, I think we got up to, to sort of 15 or I think 20,000, maybe 20,000 pounds a week. So fully 20% of our customers now come in for breakfast, maybe a bit more than that, 25%. I think we do about 55% of our trade before 5 or 6 p.m., um, which, which is really, really weird for an Indian restaurant. Um, but I think it's, it, was, it was, I don't know if it was, a, I, I, it wasn't a guaranteed thing. You know, we had to really work hard at it and be persistent. And it was quite humbling. It took a while. I must add that to my list, actually, of, of things that don't make sense except in retrospect, which is I always have this problem with actually, I suppose this is one of the things that, you know, coming from a Bain background, it must have been difficult for you to do something counterintuitive because all the market, um, all the market analysis would suggest there is no market for Indian food at breakfast and at lunchtime. And so, you know, in, in the best consulting tradition, you're supposed to respond to that. And I always argue that there are far more good ideas out there that you can post-rationalize than there are good ideas you can pre-rationalize. And that some sort of, you know, what you might call fairly um, dedicated experimentation, as you did there, genuinely paid off. I mean, if only, you know, I mean, I, you know, nobody, as far as I know, has yet replicated it. But it's an extraordinary thing because it changes the whole economics of the business. Um, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the positioning, the differentiation. We did so much marketing around... I mean, not, we don't do real marketing, but we just plugged the bacon on roll a lot. And it really resonated. And I think that because, because we got so much sort of PR out of that and so many people came along and said, wow, this is like a national dish, but somehow you managed to reinvent it with, and we cheated, of course, because all na naan is made to order. So it's very, very fresh. We put some chili jam into it and some cream cheese and, and it tasted fantastic. And, and suddenly everyone was like, this is really cheap and lovely and we can just go there regularly. I might come back for dinner. Okay, there's been less on the description, so I'm starting to make pervy facial expressions now at you describing this thing. Um, I can actually, um, actually, funnily enough, this is rather a nice segue, uh, which is that my PA actually bought her husband for his 50th birthday. Um, a, I think it's the bacon naan roll, and he, she managed to have it delivered. Now, I understand yeah. you've effectively under lockdown, not only have you, by the way, and, and, and I want to say this because... Um, I know that uh, you're probably too modest to mention, you cooked an unbelievable number of meals for the NHS under lockdown, if that's right. Yeah, yeah, we have. I, we, I, we did I, I might start volunteering as a health worker, knowing that, I didn't know. So t t tell us about that, and also tell us about how you had to kind of essentially invent a delivery business, which was never part of your intention, and also a food kit business, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, we, we've been pivoting like crazy, like, like basketball players. I mean, it's... Um, you know, I've come to resent that word, uh, pivot. It sounds so easy, uh, and it's really not. Um, I mean, on, on the first bit, I think when, when the pandemic first hit, uh, we obviously had to think about safety of our customers and safety of our team. And once you address that, you think about cash and whether you're going to die. And then we thought once we've addressed that, we obviously do have to think strategically, but we can help here. So we got involved pretty fast. And um, we, on the first pandemic, we did a lot of cooking for the NHS and just sent stuff to hospitals. This time around, we'll be doing even more and in touch with individual hospitals and individual vaccination centers where we've just sort of sent them food, just dumped food on them. And that sometimes it's uh, that they haven't been able to process it with their sort of health and safety requirements, but generally they've loved it and been able to receive it. I, I think we're up to 20 or 30,000 meals, you know, just, just in the last few months that they've sort of been eating. And I think it really helps because it's pretty miserable in the NHS. It's better now, but it, it's been bad. Um, we've also hit a milestone. It's quite, quite deep for us. We hit a milestone of... Um, for every meal we serve in the restaurants, we donate a meal to a child, either in the UK or in India. 
Um, we did that from 2015. So we've just passed 10 million meals um, to children over the last five years, which is a, a, a sort of wonderful milestone that we passed during the pandemic. But once we sort of stabilize the business, sort of, well, at least thought we had enough cash, which I don't know if we you know, did, it was quite hairy. We, we thought, right, what should we do here to be, to be creative and create more cash for ourselves and potentially have a business that we could keep? And delivery was, was a difficult decision in some ways, uh, easier in others, because I, I just have never wanted to do delivery. I thought what we do is we provide experiences to people who come into the restaurant. And in fact, we're going to go the other way. The strategy was to go in the absolute opposite direction and not do delivery and bring people into a physical space, which is beautiful, and we serve them. And yet in the pandemic, the logic of delivery was very compelling. We had to reduce our cash burn, um, which was not insignificant. We were burning an enormous amount. I think at one point, um, uh, you know, a run rate of burn of about 10 million pounds a year. So that was sort of the worst point before we were managing to, to do any generation of um, you know, revenue and mitigate that. So, so we, we ended up opening, we've opened delivery kitchens. We've opened eight delivery kitchens. And the, the thinking has been that, look, we can't get to you, so we're going to bring you awesome food at home uh, during the pandemic, and we are going to make sure that what we're giving to you is a wonderful delivery experience, uh, which brings you back into the restaurants. And fundamentally, the restaurants are what we do, but um, creating a, a, a fantastic taste of what we do, uh, we're working very hard on the experience, um, and I, I, we did a lot of benchmarking from around the world. Um, we've looked at delivery in South Korea, in Melbourne, in San Francisco, L.A., Berlin and, and looked at all the best ideas and said, Let, let's knit those into what we do and use that also as an opportunity for storytelling, for engaging. So we're still working quite hard on, on the packaging and the experience. And we also chopped off all the dishes that didn't travel. So it's quite a reduced menu. Um, so it's much smaller, um, but, but those dishes that, that we send you do travel well. So dal is maybe even better out of delivery and it's even better the next day actually. Um, the chicken curry is delicious. The biryanis are delicious. We're not sending you grills because they taste terrible. Um, naan, naan we do send you but we might start sending you little dough balls which you can make your own naan so you can choose which one to have like the naan kit and, and the business has been it's, it's taken off it's really good so now we're we're thinking about how to think about the cannibalization different channels can both businesses exist together and I, th I think our conclusion is we could keep the business on the other side but it's got to be brilliant you know it, it can't it's got to be a window into the restaurant it's got to seduce you into the restaurant and I, th I think we can make that happen and then the meal kits business, again, it's another, another sort of pivot. Um, we thought, what fun to make a bacon on roll at home. And if you can make a naan on your pan and under your grill, uh, it's fairly simple, but it's really good fun. It's quite theatrical as this naan billows up uh, and, and you put bacon on it and, and it's working pretty well. We're, um, we're, we're now, I think we're doing half of our revenue in a lockdown state as we were in an open state. Uh, and I think we're almost close to covering all of our cash burn. So, so we're... Uh, just through, through these these couple of new businesses, which are which are working working pretty well. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So I suppose the possibility exists to create the, one of these dark kitchens, which seem to be all the rage at the moment, where essentially you're a delivery-only business and that the kitchen doesn't need to occupy the same expensive real estate. And so you can create a kind of, a, you know, very different kind of business that way. Because I think also the meal kits, um, I've been quite a gusto convert under lockdown, uh, I have to say. And meal kits are particularly well suited to ethnic food because they often require small quantities of a very large range of ingredients. And so the whole question of food waste and 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 just uh, and the the you know the depth of the flavour is is something you can achieve very well there. So I mean I I'd love to see that business continue. I have to say just for purely selfish reasons. But the fact that it's making fifty percent of what you made when restaurants were allowed to open is really testament to how much I think people were missing you. Apart from else. it's really that's really extraordinary. Yeah. It's it's really lovely, and I'm I'm sort of you know, humble about it because I think it, it may not stay. Uh, so we, we've sort of we're investing in it now. We're, we're working on increasing that business, and I I'm, have no doubt that it will take a decline uh, when we get out of restaurants. And I hope we fill up the restaurants again. But um, but equally, it seems to be working now. We're investing in it. We're going to bring out new SKUs. We've just launched a mimosa kit, so you can have a sauce, a, um, a bacon naan roll plus mimosas. It's a grapefruit marmalade mimosa. It's delicious. So it's the, and and it, it sort of seems to be getting traction. I really I really hope it stays. I think it's um it's a nice nice thing to have as as a consumer as well. Any any chance of a gimlet kit? He said selfishly. Hmm. That's one of your yeah, we did, we did uh, at the Shoreditch yeah. restaurant. That's one of my all time favourites. Yeah, the gimlet. I was just suggesting, you know, that uh, a few of those might be worth worth uh, you know, good good high margin stuff. And um, uh, I'll be your first customer happily for that. That sounds fantastic. No, you're too late uh, to be the first customer. We've already done it. So I'm going to send. Uh, I'm going to send you the. It's a gimlet Negroni and old fashioned <laughs> kit. I suppose it's just just bottle cocktails. They're, they're pretty nice. Yeah. Oh, so this is astonishing. I mean, the interesting thing is a little bit of your family story is very interesting because you've got a, an MBA from Harvard. Um, and so I can just imagine what it must be like in a family where you've got a Harvard MBA and you say, I'm going into the restaurant industry. I can imagine, as you said, yeah, right. that might achieve a little bit of a little bit of pushback. Um, originally, you, you came from India via Uganda. Uh, which was one of those cases where Idi Amin's loss was our gain, uh, of which there are probably, you know, 50,000 such examples, I would argue. And then you ended up, I, th- I think the family was in Leicester for a time, is that right? Where your uncle started, is it right, Tilda Rice, is that right? Well, my father and, my grandfather and father and uh, uncles, yeah, uh, indeed. Yes. And so, um, uh, and then, um, uh, so you worked there, then then it was Harvard Business School, is that right? Then Bain, is that right? Or were you at Bain before HBS for a bit? Uh, Bain before Tilda, so after HBS. Yeah, it's a bit, bit, big gobble, but more or less, yeah. So, so I learned some stuff, then came to Tilda, but then then decided I, I had a sort of urge of my own to, to create something fresh. And I think, I mean, Business School and Bain are wonderful experiences, uh, and they teach you a lot. I think they're very, my view, they're very good 
slaves, very good tools, but less good masters. They don't tell you um, what to do or where to go, but it really is very good at helping you think through how to execute things, to, to giving you a sort of ready set of tools to understand, to analyze. But, but I think there's sort of, um, for me, fundamentally, and, and Rory, some of your stuff has been very helpful on this. It, business is about the way you make somebody feel. It's about the emotional connection yeah. you create. I think both with your team member and also your guest and reframing how somebody feels when they enter a space or when they eat some food is, 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 the, is the power, is, is how you get people to... Uh, there's an author friend of mine who says that you read a book and you stay with a book because you like the author's voice and, and you stay with that voice. You love the voice. I think it's the same with a business, actually. You, you like the voice of the business. And if, if I can do all the little things around the place that reframe how you feel and you enjoy that and you might call it voice, then I think you'll keep coming back. And I think that has to be for the team member and for the employee and, and for the guest. And somehow I didn't learn that at business school or Bain, but if once you've got that and you put that at the center, there's an awful lot of very useful tools that will help you to, to express that and to scale that into, into you know, eight restaurants with a thousand people. No, I think that's very interesting, which is, I suppose there's always a dangerous tendency in um, uh, business schools to function on what is easily quantified, focus on what is easily quantified. And of course, those things like tone of voice, actually, we have to give, I think we, we probably agree, Richard Caring as a restaurateur deserves credit for that as well that every time, you know, he takes over a place, it's very fashionable, I'm sure, within the restaurant industry to dislike him because he takes over venerable brands and kind of scales them up. But I always notice that uh, somehow he manages to maintain that kind of tonality, which is very, very hard to quantify. But it really makes the difference between a good restaurant and a great one, I think. And one of the things I, I, I always remember Drayton Bird saying to me, something very surprising, which I, you never expect to hear in an ad agency. And Drayton said once, he said, he said, to be honest, he said, I find that communications to the trade are more effective than communications to the consumer and communications to your own staff are the most important of all. Right. And um, actually, caring would be the same there. Um, your relationship with the team members is probably very, very different to that which commonly pertains in, you know, London restaurant uh, scene, where you tend to have, I think, uh, you know, longer tenure and, you know, some sort of sense of real security and, and a real relationship. And the consumer notices that, I think, even if it's very hard to put on a spreadsheet. What, what, anything particularly, any tips you'd give us in terms of how you, how, how you arrange that? I think I, I do. I've got a couple of thoughts. One, one very conceptual. So one, one is that I, I think if you want to make money and maximize profit, you shouldn't be thinking about maximizing profit. Maybe there's a book called Obliquity, which I haven't read, uh, which says, oh, that, you know, yeah, it's, no, no, it's fantastic. It's good. I've, I've got it. It's, it's a, around on my shelf and I, I want to read it. But I think we focus it's on John Kay. It's fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Well, I, I, it's almost the, any creative person listening, it's one of the first books you should read that actually the way to achieve something is not to pursue it directly. Yeah. Yeah. So carry yeah, on. I, I mean, it, yeah. it just resonates so well. If you focus on awesome food and drink, awesome service and a happy team, this, this was our sort of insight, and you control the cost because you have to do that. Um, uh, and then you treat revenue and profit as the applause that follows from doing a good job. And we've reframed everything in the business, all the reporting. We don't have a dashboard. We have a juntri. The juntri is a word that an Indian astronomer, astrologer uses when he names your baby, you know, this sort of stupid charts that he uses. Um, and we have a juntri, which starts at the top with maximize, obsess over these measures, which fun fundamentally is around 
guest welfare and team welfare. We've begun to think of team welfare even, even before that. So I think that the first thing you have to do is stick it right at the top of your list above profit. Um, and of, of course you have to control your costs. Of course you have to build a decent business model. But once you've done that to drive the business model, stick, stick team welfare right up at the top. That's the first thing. So once you've crossed that sort of conceptual bridge of saying this, this is what's important and this is how we're going to make money, not by focusing on the money, um, then I think there's lots of things that you can do uh, which are probably a bit more prosaic, but but they're really, really important. I mean, we spend an awful lot of time really thinking about how we engage our team, um, whether it's, you know, I, I still spend two hours with every new person who joins a business, uh, and, and there's there's quite a lot of them, um, taking them through the whole Dishim story and why we do what we do and the bits about Bombay. Um, every five, so if you stay at Dishim for five years, we take you on something called the Bombay Boot Camp where we show you all the best bits of Bombay, we take you around all the restaurants yeah. and all the cafes, we, we take general managers and head chefs. Um, and in fact, the, the last Bombay Bootcamp, Gabby and I put this into place when we were two or three years old. We said, well, we'll take people if they stay for five years, they'll never stay for five years. And last time we went, we took 35 people. This time we've got 110 people to take. I don't know how we're gonna do that. But, but really focusing on that as a real measure um, which is staff welfare happiness. For it, I think it just pays back in massive buckets. You just, and, and just, just do it all the time, be there every day, you know, focus on it. And there's a cliche, which is if culture is not at the top of your list, it's not on your list. You really have to be obsessed. You mean every day you have to get up and, and, uh, and, and, you know, I do a lot of repeating. I think the job of a, a leader often is to think of the things to say in a conceptually sensible way, and then just say them a lot. And I find myself saying things a lot and, and guiding that, but, you know, it, it really pays back in, in sort of buckets and dividends. We, we got to number 20 in the Times Top 100 list, and we're entering this year. We've done an awful lot of work um, in the pandemic with our teams. I lead a yoga class every two weeks, which is quite good fun. Um, but we do lots and lots of things, which I think have really helped us. So we're going to enter again this year, and I hope we can improve our place. But it's, it's so important to do. I, I, I have to say I find this incredibly impressive. I think that one of the things uh, which... Uh, I think it has been a characteristic of business I've noticed since I joined in 1988, which is that there's been a kind of assumption that your that staff are kind of fungible, that they're replaceable, and it doesn't matter whether you have uh, five people each staying for a one year or one person staying for five. I think the difference between the two is almost uh, you know chalk and cheese. It's immeasurably great, uh, and I think. Um, I think it fundamentally changes the relationship. There's a very interesting um, insight I heard from somebody who gave a talk, who's the chief operating officer of Shopify. And one of the things he does is he said, I got a lot of a stick for this because in the customer service teams, I put them into teams of 10. And the reason I put them into teams of 10 is because essentially, if you look at sport, there's something about the human evolved mind, which means cricket's 11, soccer's, oh, I call it soccer, there we go, uh, football's 11, um, uh, then, you know, rugby's 15. There's something about that size of group. And he got a lot of flack because they said, well, you're going to have high middle management costs. And, you know, what about the possibility of scale? But his discovery was that you achieve by actually having smaller teams where everybody knows everybody else and the part they play in the team, you get a kind of total football there, which you don't get when you try and scale up. And I have to say, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, vilifying your time spent at Bain, but I think that um, quite a lot of consulting activity has focused on what you might call fairly shallow ideas of efficiency and cost saving without fully accounting for what you lose to obtain these apparent efficiency gains. 
Yeah. Do you think that's yeah, possibly I, I, fair that actually one, one of the things Bain would probably have said, I mean, I'm being unfair, let's not, let's not name Bain because I've got a lot of, uh, quite a few friends there and it, as you're quite right, it's a very nice yeah. place. But I, I think there is a wider consulting problem, which is, I call this the doorman fallacy, which is you go to a hotel and you define the doorman's role in a way that makes it, for example, um, highly amenable to automation. So you say the doorman's job is to open the door and therefore we can replace it with an automatic door opening mechanism and save the doorman's salary. And it looks perfectly logical in the way you've defined it. But actually what you find is three years later, your rack rate's fallen by 30%. You know, uh, there are vagrants asleep in the doorway and most of your loyal customers have left because the doorman wasn't really about opening the door um, in the first place. He was about security, recognition, goodness knows what else. Yeah. And I think I, I can see a combination of consulting logic Let's not always knock it because in some in a field like logistics, it's probably a pretty good, you know, it's probably a pretty good approach. But combination between consulting logic and a certain kind of uh, what you might call Silicon Valley define people in a way that makes them makes their function suitable for automation, which generally I think undervalues or too narrowly defines every job. I can see those two forces acting in parallel to often obtain quite undesirable results in a way. It, it, at some level, it's the things you do that you don't have to do, which people really notice. And so defining, you know, the value of something too narrowly and too functionally in a kind of deterministic way always ends up destroying the magic because the magic comes. I had an Indian restaurant locally, which makes a fantastic uh, palaver about boxing up the food in a delivery box that has a carry handle. OK, which also means it doesn't fall over in the boot of your car, which is a bit of a plus. But, you know, this would be the first thing someone in procurement would attempt to cut. But it's actually the thing that enables them to charge a kind of 20 percent premium in a funny kind of way. And I often think that there's a, you know, that there's a, a misalignment between cost and value. Uh, which is a very, you know, it's a very, very dangerous thing, I think, in a business. And you've escaped that gloriously, I have to say. I mean, I hope so. I, I think um, it, it sort of bites on two levels, doesn't it? One is sort of stuff in the business that is around the detail that would get stripped out. But the second, I think, is, is, is where you started, which is the people side of things. And I think that fundamentally, um, I, surely, I think you get this at business school. Maybe you get it in consulting, but you certainly get it at business school. But fundamentally, business is about people and relationships. And um, there's an enormous amount of research, uh, which is, I, I don't know if you've come across the uh, very long longitudinal study at Harvard Medical School. Um, there's a guy called Robert Waldinger who talks about it, and I've, I've, I've been fortunate to hear him um, speak, and he's, he's a very impressive guy. But the research essentially says that um, to the extent that your relationships are good in your life, your old age, or even in fact your life, is just going to be healthier and happier. And they've got decades and decades of longitudinal data going back to, the I think, the 1920s or 30s. Um, and, it, and it just shows time and time again is that the most important thing for health and happiness is relationships. And I, I think that that is the fuel that makes things work. And in a business, you've got to give people time to create those relationships, understand each other. The muscle memory of being a barman and banging the drawer shut with, with your bum and sort of shaking and, and the sort of being able to be around people you know and trust is, is magical. And I think that as restaurants, it can, it can be seen as a bit frivolous. You know, eating out is a bit frivolous, isn't it? But it's really not because... Um, we, we, I think, uh, when the pandemic has really, really sort of driven us home, but restaurants are places where you see people. <laughs> restaurants are places where you make eye contact with people in the real world and not on Zoom, and you forge relationships through that sort of space that you fill by talking and not talking. 
And, and I think that it's, it's not just a thing that humans need to do. It's fundamental to who we are. Because I think we, we sort of maybe evolved being very social with each other. Uh, those who weren't very social left the sort of cave or the fire and wandered off and got eaten by saber-toothed tigers. So it's in our DNA. It's advantageous together to, to come and cluster with people we trust. And I think not only do restaurants do that, but I think that having a team that does that is, is really the way I can foster wonderful environments where people can come together and, and create and enjoy their relationships. So I think, it's, it's, I think we're all going to feel very relieved when we see each other again, but particularly around you know, if, if this is the proverbial fire of the cavemen, you gather around. It's, it's what we've been doing for millennia. We gather around a fire and we eat and we, we sing. And, and it's, it's deep. It's really in our DNA. So I think relationships and team is, is, is not in accounting. You know, this, this is beyond that. And it can create a magic which, which can't be quantified. Or maybe it can because you get the revenue. But you can't get the link uh, in a specific way. I think a lot of it's deeply unconscious. Nassim Taleb's very interesting on this because people always say, I don't like it when a restaurant's too crowded, but actually they do. Um, you know, there's something there where logically, you know, you might say, well, yeah. in, you know, in a perfectly logical world, we like to go to a quiet restaurant where we're among only very few diners. But if you look at the reality of human behaviour, people actually don't like that at all. Um, it's completely yeah. the opposite. Um, who do you most admire? Who are your competitors? And, and you know, it can be quite oblique, in, in, indirect competitors as well. But is there any is there any other business in the anything from the high end restaurant to the quick service restaurant category that you you generally admire or or, or look to? Oh, that's that's a really interesting question. Um, I don't know. I'm so busy sort of implementing things at the moment that I, I haven't had time yeah. to think about that. I, I really do have an enormous amount of admiration for uh, Jeremy Corbyn, Corbyn and King. I don't mean Jeremy Corbyn. I, I do mean uh, Corbyn of Corbyn and King, yeah. And he's um, Jeremy King, should I say, not Jeremy Corbyn at all. I'm, I'm sort of mixing up. I was going to say, yeah, I, I think there are many ways Jeremy Corbyn could reinvent himself, but a high-end restaurateur, I, 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 no, I think he'd find that slightly awkward. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Yeah, very sort of classy restaurant. But, but Jeremy King is, is someone I really admire. And he really is about the evocation of, 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 of a, a different time and a place, a detail, a dedication to the art of it. And I think in the end, as a, as, a, as a restaurateur, maybe in any consumer business, you've got to be dedicated to the thing, not to the money, because I think then you can monetize the thing, just as Johnny Ive is obsessed by the edge of the edge of the MacBook and gets to therefore monetize that in a spectacular way. Mm. But he's not thinking about the profit, he's thinking about the edge of the MacBook. So I, I, I guess I really, really respect what Jeremy King does. But then also even someone like Johnny Ive is enormously... I think he was quite inspiring. I've you know, seen some of his lectures and keynotes and just the way he is obsessed beyond, beyond the financial by, by making something brilliant. Um, and, 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 then, and then you get to monetize it. If you're passionate about it and you don't care about the money, you are entitled to monetize yeah. that. But when Dell says we need to create a great edge because it will get us market share, well, they're going to fail because they're not going to do it properly. Um, just, just as we couldn't do immersive say- theater production for brand values. I mean, I've got to do it because I love it. I had to say, I, I, I once watched a, a Johnny Ive talk, and I, I, you know, bear in mind, I love to nerd out on this stuff. But after about twenty minutes, I was thinking, I think we've probably heard enough about chamfers and bezels at this point. <laughs> but the extent to which he could actually wax lyrical about some tiny detail of an edge or a curve is exactly, you know, that's where the magic lies, essentially. And I, I, I find it so, I, I find it just really, really interesting. And I think. Um, I think also what it's done is that, you know, there are a lot of people now talking about the future of London and where people are going to live and are people going to come into London five days a week. 
But I think through your distinctiveness, you've definitely created a business which is going to hold out remarkably well. Because, you know, there, there are two things. I'll be candid from my own experience, OK? There are two things. I, when I travel into London, there are only two things I want to do, which you can't get in Tunbridge Wells or wherever else. And the two things I really miss, I have to admit, are um, the um, uh, the kebabs on the Edgware Road, particularly from Beirut Express or from Marouche. Oh, and it's impressive. actually... A, 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 yeah, yeah that, that actually is another business which could scale, I have to say. But mm. Beirut, I mean, one, one, interesting, one interesting trend, in, in, I suppose, in British restaurant food is the rise of the high and Turkish restaurant as well, isn't it? That's something comparatively new. Um, along with a very bizarre thing which fascinates me, which is that um, uh, there seems to be a huge rise in Turkish men's barbers. And I always, I, I had a row with an advertising planner about this because he was always saying, no, 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 you can learn everything you need from research. And I said, let's be honest, I said, I don't think to, 10 years ago, there were lots of people in market research who would say, I really like my barber, but I just wish he'd flick burning methylated spirits into my ears. You know, that's the thing I've been missing all along. And that's a, that's a fantastic thing, you know, and, you know, to discover a complete reinvention of a category. Yeah. And uh, the high-end Turkish, I mean, there's a great one in Bromley, actually, um, which I, I, I can highly recommend. But that's that's a, that's an, another interesting, I suppose that's a competitor space, which someone could uh, uh, could probably expand. Um, but um, this is uh, this is all incredibly welcome. But I think one of the things you will do is you will hold up remarkably well, um, because, again, out of distinctiveness. You know, even if, you know, the nature of London slightly changes, the nature of commuting slightly changes, uh, you know, I think by creating this incredibly distinctive property, I don't think you'll see the queues disappearing anytime soon, I have to say. And well, that, that I, I, by the way, is actually... I mean, we're, we're, we're being quite humble about it, in a way. I'm not, I think I'm assuming that we're going to have a great deal of uh, difficulty because of people working from home. Uh, which will reduce daytime. I think a lot of people have left London. Uh, they live in different places. EU people have left as well because of, of, of Brexit or because of the pandemic. And I think we're assuming we're going to have a problem. And I think the only way you should be is, is, is you sort of have to believe that your business is going to collapse tomorrow. You've got to go out there every day defending it and yeah. working hard to re-earn the trust of people and, and sort of get people back in. So we're, we're reopening in, in May, when I hope we can reopen, um, with, with an intent to be... Um, much better than we were. So what I want people to do is, is to, um, this is a slightly dodgy analogy, but bear with me. But, um, you know, you know if, if you last saw Die Another Day, you know, that James Bond film where it's Pierce Brosnan, it's a bit of a ropey film. But, but, then, but then you come back and you, and you see uh, Casino Royale and, you know, Daniel Craig emerges from the ocean with, with these great big pecs and you're like, oh my God, Daniel, what have you been eating? I, I sort of want people to come back into Dishim and go, Oh my God, that's even better than I remember it. Look, look at those pecs, I'm stretching it too far. But I, I sort of want people to come back thinking, wow, this is even better than I remember it. And, and we're working internally on how we up our game and, and be even better. We're trying to be even better for the team, but then even better for the guest in terms of the food, the service, every, want it to be a Daniel Craig experience. Don't be too rude about Die Another Day, by the way, because I have a peculiar connection to that, which is the girl who dances naked in the opening sequence is actually my third cousin. Um, now, I don't know why I bother pointing that out. You obviously notice, you would notice the obvious physical resemblance, I expect. Um, but um, that's my little claim to fame there in, uh, as far as the Bond franchise I'll, I'll goes. You always remember that. Yeah, exactly. That's a bit of trivia you probably didn't need to know, is it? Um, but um, no, I understand exactly what you mean. In other words, it's a kind of the return uh, is something which... Now, marketing spend, of course, for the restaurant category... 
um, has plummeted. I think I've got the figures here, actually. Uh, let me see. In 2020, the UK's biggest restaurants, uh, their online and digital advertising spend was roughly 150 million. And that's uh, um, 100 million less than it was in 2019, would you believe it or not? Now, I have to say, I, I mean, I think that's slightly risky. I think there, there is an argument to actually advertising even, I mean, the famous case being, I think, Wrigley's Spearmint Gum, which advertised during World War II, even though it wasn't available, in order to create pent-up demand when it should return. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, I, th I, th I think we will probably see some, you know, uh, explosion in marketing and promotion. Uh, any thoughts on that yourself? How do you promote yourself or do you not need to? Is it entirely through word of mouth and um, uh, and, and repeat business? It's, I mean, it's how do you question. promote yourself to... In a tourist site, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, you, you have to essentially make someone recognise a concept from scratch more or less, you know, as a you know, as someone walking by, the queues obviously help, don't they? So queues are a marvelous, marvelous way of providing social proof. And Covent Garden, particularly, I think you serve chai to people in the queue, if I remember rightly. Yeah, um, with, with, but, we, um, we did we did the queue together. Do you remember once that was? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, that was fantastic. So we, we, well, I think um, we we never believed in in marketing, and in fact, I think before I launched uh, Dishem with with my co-founders. I had read that book, Purple Cow, uh, whose name mm. the author I've forgotten, but Seth Godin. And, Seth, and I, sort Seth of Godin. I declared very sort of naively and, and a bit sort of, uh, I just said, marketing's dead. This is rubbish. We're not doing any marketing. We're going to bake the remarkability into <coughs> what we do. And, and it's sort of, you know, naively. I didn't know anything about anything. But um, I mean, still not. But we, we decided instead of doing um, marketing, we, we did we did a decent amount of PR. So what we what we thought is let's propel word of mouth using organic social. Uh, but back then there was only organic social basically, and 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 let's also do stuff that bakes in the remarkability. Let's make it different and interesting. And and nowadays we don't. I don't think we spend any money on above the line and digital. We we have recently because of our um, uh, products business, which I think is maybe slightly different, but. But we'd much rather blow a whole bunch of cash on an immersive theatre production uh, or on a record, um, which has paid for itself many times over, or on our book, for example, put the effort into that. And I, I think for us, I mean, th those numbers are huge, you know, 100 million or 150 million. I can't really sort of relate to them because we don't spend yeah. any money on, on above the line or digital. We, we sort of work on making it remarkable, build in the story, work on that, and then, and then try and turbocharge the word of mouth uh, to, to bring people in. And apparently we have a great following amongst the tech community and the creative community of Boston and San Francisco. And I, I don't know how that happened, um, but I, I think it's, uh, it's through you know, re repeat business and, and word of mouth and people talking about it. So people who fly into London will actually go out of their way. It's just word of mouth through the tech community in, 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 in San Jose. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I, I have friends there who, uh, you know, there's friends of mine in, in the West Coast who, who who sort of come to London, discovered it, mentioned it to their teams and said, oh, I know Shamal who founded Deshim. And, and they're like, oh, I've got celeb status. And, you know, I think one of the guys was was VP of Pinterest or something, you know, running Pinterest. And he was like, I'm a celeb now because I know you. It's ridiculous. But there's, I think this I found pockets of, I've just been surprised, like, how does that work? Um, so there's sort of things happen that way. But I think it's better not to do marketing or advertising. <laughs> it's a marketing conference.
Well, the glory of sort of marketing as contagion is you, instead of predefining who your target audience is, you discover to your immense surprise that your target audience is actually much more varied and diverse than any kind of demographic can capture, which I always think is really interesting. I always think it's a terrible mistake to go in with a complete kind of preconception over who your customers will be, because it's never that simple. Yeah. Um, I've got to ask one question, which intrigues me. One thing that could take the Deschum comp concept on the road is a kind of food truck. Now, it would have to be a kind of eccentric vehicle, possibly accompanied by a fleet of Austin ambassadors or something. But I've always thought there's some potential there. We have a wood-fired pizza van that stops at the end of the drive here on Mondays. And I'm convinced that my daughters buy more food from it than they would if it were a restaurant open seven days a week, simply because of the scarcity thing. It's only here once, once a week. So now's your chance. I've always thought the, the potential for the food truck, which obviously is widely explored in LA and places like that, I think that could be extended in the UK a bit. I'm always intrigued by the possibility. Do you have any thoughts along that line? Yeah, it's a great idea. Or is it just very difficult it. to do? Is a mobile tandoori very energy hungry? I mean, Elon Musk could probably provide you with some sort of battery solution, but I'm, no, I'm just wondering if... Uh... <laughs> it's a good question. I, I think it's a great idea. I mean, we have thought about it in the past, the food truck. And it's always never made the list of strategic priorities. We've always sort of had too much to do. But actually, as I think about it, um, in, in this sort of pandemic and post-pandemic environment where we're trying to launch a products business, I mean, having a bacon non roll truck might be just a piece of genius. You know, it rocks up in your neighborhood and, yeah. and the sort of ice cream bell rings and it's the Deschamps bacon non roll truck, which sells you the bacon non roll kit as well as bacon non rolls. Could, could be a really interesting thing to do. So I'm glad you mentioned it. I'll think about that tomorrow morning. <laughs> I'll give, I'll give one tip, which is that if you, if you focus on selling only one thing, people will pay a greater premium for it because they assume that that one thing must be fantastic. There's a guy in Australia in Sydney who's just opened a restaurant called Wings and Tins. Okay, it's the most Australian thing imaginable. They only sell chicken wings and tins of beer. That's it. And I think, you know, one of the, Starbucks did that because they could charge more for coffee because coffee was their lead product. It wasn't sold as a, as a kind of, you know, a sideline. And I think there's an interesting behavioral insight there. If you have a, actually a very, very limited menu of high margin products, you can, I'm terribly sorry, I've just had a voice in my ear which says I could go on all evening, as you can imagine, uh, except for slightly have the conversation making me feel hungry. But I was just going to end, I'm just absolutely great to talk to you. So thanks for your time today. I can recommend the restaurant absolutely without reservation to everybody listening. If you haven't been, go. And even if you think you won't like the food, you will, or you're basically deranged. Okay, that's the first point. And um, it just remains for me to say that's all for this episode of On Brand. Uh, the podcast is brought to you by Alf Insight. For more information on powering your business growth, visit their website, which is at alfinsight.com. That's alfinsight.com. Uh, the series is produced and edited by Ultimate Sound and Vision, very expertly, I might add. And um, to make sure you receive the next episode, obviously, here's my usual plug. Please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then give us a like. So thanks for listening and immense thanks. See you soon. Yeah. In person, I hope. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello 
Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.